Going to fall retreat might seem like, I'm just going to move, well, I'll put on people here. Going to fall retreat might seem like a big yes, right? A big decision to make. Maddie said how she was kind of like, wasn't sure. I know some of you are thinking, ooh, that sounds fun. Um, it is on the Instagram now. Just loaded it. Right when Hunter said that, I was like, oh, yeah, let me do that really quick. Put it on the Instagram. So it's on there. So I don't know if seven of you have signed up yet, but see us after and we'll get you those stickers. Uh, but sometimes we have big decisions to make, right? We talked about housing. We talked about um, giving our lives to Jesus. That's kind of a big decision, a very big decision. And there are just so many big decisions to be made in college. Like, what are some of the big decisions that you guys have made? You can just call them out. Your major. Your major. And then maybe you make it again, you know? <laughs> what other decisions do you make? Yeah. What to study, how to study. Hmm? Where to live? Yeah, I thought you said word of life, and I was like, the <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Where to live? Who to hang out with? Who are your friends? Maybe some of your seniors are feeling that like, what am I doing next year? Because I'm probably not doing school, most likely. <laughs> like undergrad, undergrad, probably, maybe. Who knows? You know what? I would love. Yeah, I think fifth years are great. So happy for fifth years. Um, yeah, there are so many big decisions to make, and I'm having trouble once again. There we go. All right, so, so many big decisions to make. So how do you make those decisions? Do you guys have, like, a rubric? Flip a coin? That seems wise. Cast lots, like, in the Bible, yeah. Yeah, how do you make big decisions? Talk about it. Yeah. Close your eyes and pick one. You just scroll through the majors and then you're like, okay, Lord, wherever it leads, I'll just trust you. Yeah, how do we make big decisions? Well, one of my favorite authors and speakers, Alicia Britt Sholey, has a quote about how we make decisions. She says, decisions we make in difficult places today are greatly the product of decisions we made in the unseen places of our yesterdays. Right? Decisions we make in difficult places today, it's worthy to be repeated, are greatly the product of decisions we made in the unseen places of our yesterdays. So how do you make big decisions? You make them in the everyday decisions that you're making even today. Because those small decisions really are determining what you're going to do in those big decisions. And how do we not just make decisions, but how do we make good decisions, right? Like you can just flip a coin. You can just like scroll and see which one, where your finger lands. You can just guess or pick or pick it out of a hat. But how do you make a good decision? You're all like, I don't know. That's why I'm here. I'm trying to learn. Well, that's good. Because tonight we're going to find out the answer. Ready? All right. So how do you make good decisions? Good decisions are made by being obedient to God. Because I don't know if you know this, but God is all-knowing. Like when you say we talk about it, what if we talked about it with God? Crazy idea, I know. 
But what if we talked about it with God, and then what if we were obedient to what God says? What would that be like? Obedience isn't a moment, it's a process connected by countless moments. And tonight I love our passage because it speaks to this very point, that the decision to be obedient to God in the big decisions of life come from the decisions to be obedient to God in the seemingly small decisions in life. Because the small daily decisions turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and years turn into our lifetime, right? And so as we make the decision to be obedient to God in the seemingly small things, we will be obedient to God in the big things too. So let's turn together in Genesis chapter 6. We have been exploring the book of Genesis together this semester, and it's been fantastic. If you don't have your Bible, can I get Emily or Sam, whichever? I just saw you. Uh, Emily can grab some Bibles from the welcome table. And if you need a Bible, if you want to look through, there are some really interesting passages tonight. So I highly recommend having the text with you. Uh, and it is the first book of the Bible. Yeah, you can just raise your hand and Emily will get you a Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. So through our semester, we have seen what God intended the world to be like, right? We saw that in Genesis 1 in the creation narrative. We see what God has intended, that he had made a space for human beings and God to be together, to walk together. The Garden of Eden, everything was in harmony and at peace, and there was rest in the land. Everything worked together. There was a created order, and there was an order where God was the primary, right? And people were God's image on the earth. People weren't God. They were the image of God, God's ambassadors on the earth to rule the earth. And there was this cohesion and harmony, and it was beautiful until sin. And the sin was disobedience to God, right? God had said, do this and don't do this, though. That's not good for you. And along the way, Adam and Eve chose to distrust God and be disobedient. And then, as we have seen the past few weeks, chaos ensued, right? Chaos ensued. We saw last week that there was even murder. We saw our first murder last week through Cain and Abel. And it, it continues through the line of Cain. There is murder, there is chaos, there is turmoil, there is um, despair, right? There's innocent blood spilled, there's violence and death, and nothing is as it should be. Nothing is like God intended for the goodness of his creation. And so we're going to look at what was happening. Chapter 6, verse 1. This is really weird, so just read it with me. <laughs> when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, these spiritual beings, saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them they were the heroes of old men of renown everybody got that totally understand it okay great moving on no I'm just kidding okay so what is happening here Katie why have you chosen this passage to read it seems really odd where is this going how does this deal with obedience to God well when we don't understand something in scripture, or better yet, really every time we come to scripture, there's a great question we need to ask. Because the Bible was written for us, but the Bible wasn't written to us, right? We were not the original hearers of this Genesis text. And so we must ask this question, what did this mean to them then, right? So we're gonna find that out. So this passage, that we just read is this whole passage really is a literary device used to call us back to the garden in this instance it's calling us back to genesis chapter 3 which is where humans first made the choice to disobey god in the in the book of genesis in the chapter 3 humans decided to disobey god because they were looking to be God and have the knowledge God had. And humans in that instance were deceived by a spiritual being, okay? So in this instance, so in that instance with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve saw something good, right? This fruit and they took it even though it wasn't good even though God had said, don't do this. So in this story, there are spiritual beings again, and these spiritual beings are now the ones that see something is good because all of the daughters, all of the human women are good. Thank you, yes, we are. <laughs> I did not hear any amens, but it's true. Let it be, Lord, okay. Uh, all human women are good, yes. So, so in this instance, the spiritual beings, see that the human women are good and they take them and one of the commentators that I was reading said that they take them as mates really um, and that was an interesting interesting um, word to use I see in the NIV it says take them as wives or marry them um, and have children by them so we see again someone is seeing something good taking it for themselves right just like in Genesis well, in Genesis 3, when they take the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, they are banished from having eternal life, from living forever. Because God is like, I don't want you to live forever in this sinful state. Like, this isn't good for you, so I'm going to separate you from living forever. Well, in this instance, as these spiritual beings who are eternal are mating with these human beings, it's kind of this process of seeking eternal life on their own. And so while this is a crazy story, it should remind us that we do not live in the ancient Near East, right? Do any of you guys live in the ancient Near East? Okay, no, good. So we don't live in the ancient Near East, but this would have been something really common. If you think of um, later on Greek mythology, you can think of half humans, half spirit beings, um, in the ancient Near East, it was very 
common to understand this and even understand some kings as being these half spirit, half humans. Okay, so that was a very uh, common paradigm or concept that people thought of. Very weird to us, unless you think of like Thor, right, Micaiah? Micaiah is a true Marvel fan, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it. We both saw our like, first Marvel movies in the last year, um, or two years maybe for me. I can't count. Um, but yeah, it seems really uncommon for us, but it's the same idea that humans are seeking to be God instead of seeking to obey God. And God sees that as this is happening, chaos is still ensuing. And so God decides that he is not going to have this anymore because of the chaos ensuing. And so let's read verse 5. So that all is going on, what we just talked about. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the heart, only evil, all the time. It wasn't just like a few people are like not really following God. It was like no one is following God. Everyone is going their own way. Everyone is disobeying God. Everyone is doing what they see as good in their own eyes, which was the original sin and what led to the destruction and despair that they're currently in. Every, every heart evil all the time. And what is the response of God to this? God's response is one of grief. We're going to read the flood story in a little bit. And I have talked to people throughout the years who see this as an angry act of an angry God. But really, this says that God is grieved. In verse 6, it says that this situation grieved him to his heart. And this word grieved, this Hebrew word grieved, is a word that is more commonly used to describe the way that a married woman feels when she is abandoned by her husband. It is this deep sense of grief. So God is grieved. You know, I have four kids, and one of them has a concussion right now. And it's not his first concussion this year. And can I tell you, when my kids are hurting, when they're in pain, and especially when I know it could have been avoided, I am so grieved. When my kids hurt, I feel it. Brooke's mom is like, yes. <laughs> like, parents feel this pain when their kids are hurting, right? I grieve when my kids are hurting or when they're making choices that I know are not going to end well for them because they're going to have to go through pain. And when I know this isn't the way it has to be, and that's how God feels in this moment. He's thinking back to creation. I did not create the world to be like this. God says, I created the world for harmony, for peace, this idea of shalom, where everything works together. And now there's destruction and murder and injustice and innocent blood being spilled. You can read that the last few chapters before chapter six. 
And God is grieved by that. And so we have a grieving God. And then we see that God is going to act to preserve the goodness of his creation. So what he does and what we read the rest of tonight is done in order to preserve the goodness of his creation. So as sin is prevailing, as selfishness, murder, violence, corruption, and destruction are prevailing, God is determined to stop it. And he gives them 120 years. He says, I'm going to take away, uh, I think it says, my spirit. My spirit's not going to live with them. But it's this word ruach, which is the word that describes when God breathes life into human beings in the beginning in, verse, or in chapter 1 and 2. This idea of ruach, God's breath of life. He says, I'm not going to let them have that anymore because it's only leading to destruction. But God acts for his plan to prevail. So God's plan is still going to happen. He's going to save a remnant. He's going to save someone who is not going the way of corruption, who is being obedient to God. And he's going to save that remnant, and then salvation will come through that family. So a remnant is a small portion to bring restoration to the rest. And it's a theme you're going to see over and over and over again in the Old Testament. This idea that there is massive chaos and destruction, and then God chooses, not ever in this way again, you'll see later, but God chooses to save a person or to choose a person to save out of that chaos and to continue his plan through. So who will it be tonight? Do you guys know? You can tell me if you know. Who's it going to be? Noah. Noah. Yeah, great. Noah and his wife, Joan, of the Ark. Uh. <laughs> also, my daughter, Esther, or my daughter, Emma. Sorry, I get them confused. Do you really? I don't know. Their names are all in one bank in my brain. You learn that in cognitive science. I don't know. Um, I, my brain just like pulls one out at times, and it's like, child, child name. OK, there you go. So my daughter Emma is 12 and she's in seventh grade and she is in the play Frozen at her school. So if you want to save the date, Friday and Saturday before Thanksgiving break, go to Skyline Middle School. I'm going to show you where to get tickets. I think they're $5. Save that now. Just save a dollar a week. You got $5. It's called Smoothing Expenses. That's a free one, not in the notes. But she gets to sing the song, the Bikes Around the Hall song, where she's like, hang in there, Joan. And when Emma... Don't tell Emma I told you this. But when Emma came home the first day after rehearsal, she's like, Mom, I always thought it was Joe. <laughs> Hang in there, Joe. <laughs> and she's like, it's Joan, Mom. Who is that? So I had to explain who Joan of Arc is. But yes, Noah. Noah is the person that God is going to work through. So Noah is found by God. So in verses 8 and 9, it shows us that God is searching through the land to find someone that is not going the way of corruption, someone that is following the way of God, is being obedient to God, is making decisions, right, that are honoring to God. And then God is going to ask him for a very big yes, a very big obedience. But he made those decisions 
by walking faithfully with God. The text tells us that Noah walks with God faithfully. And that's what God's intention for all of us is, right? To walk with God faithfully, to trust God and to be obedient to him. And so we see that Noah walks faithfully with God. And God finds Noah. And a fun note is that Noah's name means rest. What did God do when creation was formed and everything was very good? He rested, right? It was this idea of peace over the lands, this idea of inner peace and outer peace, right? And so Noah's name means rest. So God chooses Noah and gives Noah instruction. And the crazy thing is Noah does it. Why is it crazy? Well, go to verse 11. So this is God speaking to Noah. Uh, or it will be. This is uh, his plan. So verse, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around it. Put a door in the side of the ark. Make lower, middle, and upper decks. That seems wise. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring the ark to, you're bring to the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and food for them. So that is God's plan that he reveals to Noah. And Noah's like, oh yeah, this is pretty normal. No, not normal at all. So this is God's plan to recreate, to have a recreation. It begins with the state of the earth. Then we see God decide to move um, his plan through Noah, through this remnant, and what God's going to do is he's going to let the waters that he has pushed back and given boundary, he's going to let those waters be let free again to cover the earth. And then he's going to restore people to himself through Noah's family. So this plan of God was for Noah to build a really big ark. Hallie's going to go see the ark. Where are you sitting, Hallie? Oh, there you are. Hallie's going to go see the ark, not the real one that we know of. No, I'm just kidding. They built a, they took what we just read, right? And they built an ark in Illinois, we think. One of the I states. Kentucky. <laughs> just kidding. One of the K states. Uh, and it is really cool looking. We almost went there. So Hallie's going to bring some pictures back for us. But it's like one and a half football fields four stories high. This thing is huge. It's going to take Noah over 100 years to build. 
right? Like we think waiting for like Friday is hard, you know? <laughs> like Noah waited for over a hundred years, right? So he ultimately gets on the ark, he obeys God, and the next chapter tells us about um, Noah's time on the boat. But as we read what God said he was going to do, it calls us back again. This whole situation with Noah and with the flood calls us back over and over and over again to the book of Gen- or to the chapter one of Genesis. And as you read this for the rest of your life, read it through that frame, through that paradigm of the original intent in the garden and in what happened in the garden, because you're going to see so many parallels, I couldn't even tell you all of them tonight. So the ark that Noah builds, Noah builds the ark. I think there's a song about it, but I can't remember it right now. Wait, I just thought of it. Anybody remember that song? Uh, So Noah Noah builds the ark. Tell me later. Maybe we'll sing it for worship next week. No, I'm just kidding. It was like a nursing (laughs) rhyme. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely like a kid's church like kind of song. (laughs) A floody, floody. Is that the one? Oh, nice. That was the front royal version. Just kidding. Um, So Noah builds the ark. It takes 100 years. Noah gathers the animals, his family, gets on the ark. God closes the door, and the floods come. And Noah is on this ark that has become a little Eden. It's this miniature Eden on the waters. So there are trees, right? Wood, it's built out of wood, not steel, sorry. It can only go so big. I read something that said it was like the biggest it could be to float but not be steel. Now that what with what we know now, isn't that crazy? It's wild. All you engineers, you should check that out. Fact check me. But he's on this little miniature Eden. It's this place where People and God are living in harmony with the animals, right? It might not smell very good, but like the garden probably smelled better, but still, miniature Eden. And God lets the waters come back over the earth, and then he takes the breath of life away from the people and the animals and the agriculture die. So it's this picture of decreation, Right? We can hear Genesis 1 ringing in our ears when we hear this. Because God gives the breath of life to people. He gives life to um, agriculture. He gives life to the animals, right? And that he holds back the waters. He gives them boundaries. But then here, everything that he has done is undone. Except for on the ark. So we read that what God said he would do really does happen. We just sang about that. I was like, oh, perfect song. What God says he will do really does happen. When will we learn to trust God? The interesting thing is that it doesn't say it just rained that whole time. Um, Where did the water come from? Well, in chapter 7, verse 10, it says the floodwaters came. Verse 11 says, the floodgates of heaven are opened. And in verse 12, it finally says, rain fell on the earth. So there was some rain. Don't worry. But water, we see this picture of water coming in from everywhere, this decreation. 
And it's powerful imagery because the Hebrews, the original hearers, had a collective fear of water. A fear of water. And God repeatedly through scripture shows them that God is more powerful than water. Can you think of other instances of scripture, of the Bible, where God shows his power over water? Maybe when Jesus stands on the boat and says, peace be still and calms the water as a storm is happening. Or in the Red Sea where Moses and the Israelites are trapped and God parts the sea in half. And in Genesis 1 where God gave the waters boundaries. God is repeatedly telling him about his power. This would have spoken a lot to the collective fear that the Hebrews had over water. And I wonder what God would speak to us. What's our collective fear in our culture? Maybe just in this group. What would God speak? What truth would he want to speak about who he is? So as the waters cover the earth, another parallel to Genesis is now animals and human beings are, yeah, are not all lost, right? There's a remnant in the chaos. And although animals and humans are dying on the earth, and it seems like there's no hope, what is this really going to do? God is still at work, just like he is in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God, right? And God's plan is still going to prevail. So a summary of what happens through the flood, I think is going to come up. Yeah. So this is really cool. Pay attention to the pairings. So 7-10 and 8-10, 7-12 and 8-6, like that. So after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals. So that's like decreation. And now the waters recede steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And after 40 days, Noah opens a window he'd made in the ark. And then he waits seven more days and sends out the dove. So there's 7, 40, 150, 150, 47. And it's intentional, right? God is a God of creation, of order, and God is speaking in these numbers, not in a weird way, not like we can add them up and then see when Jesus is coming back, because Jesus actually tells us not to do that. Um, but God is showing that this is intentional decreation. What may seem like chaos, the waters flooding the earth, is an intentional process by which God is going to continue his plan forward. And then we see in Genesis 8, after the floods have receded, we see this beautiful parallel to Genesis 1, the creation story. And we see how God is recreating. He is bringing new creation and new life. And I really encourage you to see that. We see that God causes a spirit to pass over the earth in Genesis 8. We see that um, 
The springs of the deep were closed, these waters, and the windows of heaven and the rain from the heavens are withheld. We see the mountain peaks appear, the dove returns, um, evening and morning come, kind of giving hint to like the sun and the moon. We see a raven go out back and forth, and that shows us how the birds were flying over the earth. We see that every living thing is on the earth. And then we see that God says they shall be fruitful and multiply. There's so many callbacks to Genesis 1. This is new creation. So God has been grieved by the condition of the human heart. Grieved. And he's determined to have his plan prevail. Noah is obedient, which is key. And at the very end, God establishes a covenant with Noah, just like he said he was going to do in chapter 6. And he says in chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God says, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. A covenant for us too. And God knows that people aren't going to be perfect, but God is determined that his plan will prevail. And as a sign, God gives the rainbow in the sky. And he says, this is a sign of the covenant I am making with you. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant. God's covenant that will never do this again and the sign of the rainbow points to that. Tim Keller says that God hangs up his war bow in the sky. I think someone in here knows something about bow and arrows. It's Rachel Smith. She can take any of you, I'm pretty sure, in a archery contest. Tim Keller says that God hangs up his war bow down, his, hangs his war bow in the sky. The arrows of God's justice will not again be shot against humans, but it's not pointed toward earth anymore, right? If you think of the shape of a rainbow and you think of it like a bow and arrow, where is it pointed? It's pointed towards what the Hebrews would consider the heavens because God's plan now through the lineage of Noah, this remnant that has been saved, is that God will eventually take the arrows of justice and judgment upon himself. Through Jesus, who will come and bring salvation to us all. Jesus, like Noah, being obedient to God. Jesus will come and bring salvation. Jesus will be obedient to God even unto the cross. Noah was obedient to build the ark. Jesus is obedient to become the ark for us. In Jesus, we can be saved because although Christ goes into the waters of justice and judgment, right, Jesus is our ark, he comes out victorious once and for all. Victory not just over the waters that the Hebrews feared, but victory over sin and death and violence and everything that was not as it should be. Down in the waters of judgment he goes, and we in Christ are spared. 
And this is the symbol of baptism. We go down in the waters, right? Showing that we are baptized in Christ, and then we come up to new life and victory. It's this symbolic um, proclamation that we have died to ourselves and now live for God. And we're going to be having baptisms on November 4th, so just put that on your counter at our worship service. Feel free to come. And this is the sign of the covenant with Noah that still serves as a sign for us today, this rainbow, that God loves us so much that he would take on his arrows of judgment and justice so that we can be saved. So that we can be saved to do what? To do what God intended in the first place. To be obedient to God, right? And as the rainbow is put in the sky as a final parallel to the first creation story, God commands Noah's family to be fruitful and multiply. And our identity as image bearers of God is once again restored. And we find that today as we are in Christ, as we walk with God and as we trust God. So tonight in our story, the problem was disobedience to God. And the solution was obedience to God. God says to Noah, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build this ark over a hundred years in the desert, where it doesn't really rain that much. It was the Fertile Crescent, though, but there's not a lot of rain. There's no rain. Uh, And it's also going to take a hundred years. It'll be really big. It will take a lot, a lot of your time and resources. Take your friends, maybe. And Noah says yes. And if you go back to chapter 6 with me, verse 22, Noah's response isn't just a yes, but it says in chapter 6, verse 22, what we would want be said of us. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He followed through, right? Obedience to God isn't just saying yes to God in one moment but it's in each moment that make up the days, that make up the weeks and the years. Faith in God is follow through. Obedience to God is follow through. How are we to make decisions? How are we to make good decisions? We follow God through faith and obedience. And how do we know what God wants? How do we know what God is speaking to us? We walk with God like Noah did. So if Rachel um, and the band, yeah, the whole band can come up. Um, We're going to sing the last song, Promises, again. But first, I'd love everyone to stand. And I'd love for you to just find a spot in the room. I have a couple more things to consider. So just find a different spot than what you're in now. So Noah was obedient to God. This obedience to build the ark not only saved Noah, but it saved his family, and it created a line to bring Jesus to the earth to save us today. And you guys can sit or stand or whatever you'd like to do. That was a big decision by Noah, right, to say yes to building the ark. And how do we make big decisions? It was in those other seemingly smaller decisions that Noah made that made a yes to God possible for that really big thing God asked of him.
And how hard do you think it was for Noah to build the ark? We know he was made fun of and ridiculed. It took a hundred years to build. It not only affected him, but his family. Humiliation is something none of us enjoy. It required his resources and it required great faith. Noah was not a meteorologist. He did not know that rain was coming or water was coming, right? He had to trust God. Dick Foth says that faith only works in the dark. And isn't that true? If it's really, is it really faith if we already know? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 2 Corinthians 5.7, For we live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.7, By faith Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy reverence for God, built an ark to save his family. Noah didn't know what was going to happen, but he trusted God. And did you know that God has a love language? In John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So tonight, if you're here and you would say, you know, I see this story of scripture is really about relationship with God, and I don't really have one of those. Maybe I used to, or I used to be close with God, but I would like to walk with Jesus. Can I encourage you tonight to step into that relationship? Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, God in human flesh, came because we couldn't do that, right? We couldn't do that. God knew humans are not going to be able to live up to this. So he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to make a way for us to be in relationship with God. And then Jesus ascends to heaven and leaves God as Holy Spirit here to not only lead us and guide us, but to come and be inside of us, to fill us, to allow us to be able to be obedient to God. And so maybe tonight you want to step into that relationship with Jesus. And maybe tonight you're here and you would just say, I need help trusting God. I need help being obedient. Maybe there's distrust there. Can I encourage you that God has a perfect track record? God always keeps his promises. God always does what he says he will do. God is always faithful to us. And so as we sing, may it be a declaration of our trust and our faith in God. And if you would say that you'd like to enter into a relationship with Jesus, I'd like us to just all repeat um, a really simple prayer. Prayer is literally just talking with God. And so you can just say, God, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. Will you help me? I recognize that I have sinned, that I am not good enough, but I recognize that you are God and that you give me this life and this purpose and you help me live it. So God, will you come inside of me? Will you help me to follow you the rest of my days?
Do you need more trust in God, that God really is who he says he is and really can do what he says he can do, that he loves you, that he's good? The testimony of God is found in the testimony of our friends, right? And also in scripture and by the Holy Spirit. Trust is essential and obedience is essential. You know, as I was studying this, I realized there's no steering wheel on the ark. There's no rudder on the ark, no way for the humans inside to direct their path. They just had to trust God. So how can we be obedient to God when the big decisions come? How can we make those decisions? We start by being obedient to God in the small things. Obedience is not a moment. It's a process connected by countless moments. So let's have just a moment of prayer and then the band is going to start. And we're going to declare that we believe God keeps his promises, that we believe that God is faithful, and that we are committed to following him and being obedient to him no matter what.